The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. I'm your host, Joey Bushnell. Today I'm talking to a top copywriter, Vin Montello. Go to montellomarketing.com to find out more. Vin, thank you very much for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Joey. Vin, how did you get into copywriting? Okay, so I am very, very rare in, in copywriting. I actually was a writer. Uh, most copywriters come from sales. Mm-hmm. They tend to be salesmen. Uh, some of them come from journalism uh, because those are two things that really do play into copywriting. Me, I came from a whole different world of, of writing. I, uh, well, let me back up even further. I was a stand-up comic, uh, for 10 years back in the 80s. Wow. Uh, worked all over the world doing stand-up comedy, uh, and then moved to Los Angeles in the late 80s to, um, basically find my stardom and get my own sitcom. And, uh, uh, did very well there, except never got my own sitcom. And as they say, I was racing my hairline to a career. Uh, I just started getting older and balder and, and wasn't hireable as on-screen talent anymore. So uh, we decided that I would write television. So I, I for 20 years, wrote television. Um, some popular shows, some not so popular. Uh, I actually wrote a sitcom that was up every week against Seinfeld. Nobody saw it. But uh, someone has to write that stuff. Sure. Uh, the most famous show that I wrote was a, um, a cartoon series called Rugrats. I wrote that for two seasons. Really? Wow, I watched that as a kid. I grew up on that. Yeah, well, see, now you're making me old. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, I wrote uh, a couple seasons of Rugrats along with a partner. Also wrote, uh, most recently, a few years ago, wrote uh, the the recent incarnation of the Looney Tunes, which was called Lunatics, and it was kind of an anime, futuristic superhero take on Bugs Bunny and worked on that, have also produced reality shows, even uh, had a, a pilot on TLC channel here in America last year. So, I mean, I still dabble in television. But what happened was in 2004, I had just gotten married, and uh, my wife and I wanted to raise a family, and I realized after, you know, 15 years in Los Angeles, um, I was unemployable anywhere else in the world. So uh, I could not bring my skills. You can't move and say, oh, Miami's nice. I'll move to Miami. Well, you're not going to get a lot of sitcom writing jobs in Miami. Uh, even television shows that shoot, you know, that are based in Miami almost never shoot in Miami. They shot in Los Angeles, like CSI Miami, for instance, <laughs> is not in Miami. So um, so we wanted to leave Los Angeles so I could raise a family uh, because I did not want to raise children in Los Angeles for many reasons. But uh, like I said, realized I was unemployable and then literally opened an email one day and it was an advertisement for a course on being a copywriter. So that's where the story gets boring. It starts out fun and then it gets boring. I literally bought the course for $500. It's a famous course that a lot of copywriters, a lot of well-known copywriters today have taken and bought this course for $500 immediately dove into it, realized they kept talking about in the course about how you don't have to be a writer to do this. In fact, being a writer will hurt you. And I'm going, well, well, I'm screwed then because I'm a, I'm an actual writer. Mm-hmm. 
but I made sure to kind of bring to it what I bring to, to uh, the party, my writing skills, storytelling skills, and a little bit of humor. And I figure if I can bring that into a world that doesn't require it, all of a sudden now I've got something special. So I excelled at the course instantly within literally a matter of weeks, had um, aced one of the, uh, the assignments. It's like a test you take where you write a sales letter. And I aced it on the first try. It was only the second person in the history of the course to ever ace it and get a perfect score. Immediately then afterwards, people started calling. I got a call to be in an amateur contest where amateur copywriters who all had like a year more experience writing copy than I did. And it was me against eight of them. Well, actually, it was a total of 15 of them. And we had to write for two different products, and my copy outsold the nearest competitor like three to one. So my copy was selling, and I'll tell you, here's, I know it's a long long story, Joey, but what it comes down to is this. The skills I bring to the table are storytelling skills, and I learned something very early on. Nobody likes to be sold to, but everybody likes a good story. So if you can just tell them a good story, their defenses come down, and then you can sell to them. So um, so basically, that's the story, how it started. I, I excelled very quickly, uh, had a few million-dollar successes under my belt, uh, started instantly training. I started training the next generation of big copywriters. Some of them are, as we spoke earlier, my competition now, and others are literally on my, you know, they work with me. We are a team, and we, we gang projects together, which is a style of copywriting, a style of writing that I took from Hollywood where we gang write projects together. So instead of being stuck in a room for a month working on a sales letter, you get to work with other people on the sales letter. So it becomes more fun. So that's kind of the the short story, even though it wasn't that short. But, uh, yeah, I, I started out with a skill, got really good really fast and then started excelling at it. And if anybody who's ever thinking of writing copy or anything you want to do in business, get good at it and people start opening their wallets and wanting to pay you a lot of money for it. So that's the secret. Cool. You said that you gang write. Is that what it's called? I've not heard of that before. Yeah, it's gang writing. It's, it's a term that comes from uh, sitcoms. You know, you look at a show, let's go back to a famous one like Friends or, or Seinfeld. And you look at it, and even though there's a name on the end of it, written by, each episode gets a written by credit, one or two people, sometimes three. They're most often, 90% of the time, actually Seinfeld is, is the, the exception to the rule, but they're 90% of the times a sitcom is written by a table full of writers. So you'll have a crew of about between 8 and 14 writers, and you spend probably four of the five days in your work week sitting in a writer's room around a big table. Wow. And and you start coming up with ideas and someone's on the whiteboard or in the old days, the blackboard. And, um, and you're basically kicking around ideas. And then often parts of a script are sent off like, Oh, listen, the opening scene at the nightclub. Why don't you two guys go off and, and quickly write something up on that. And then why don't you guys go off and write that and you put it all together and then it gets read again. And the idea, what you get here is this part of it becomes a Frankenstein project where there's a lot of cobbling stuff together. That's the downside. That's the bad side. But the good side is you have these tremendously talented people all in one room trying to outdo one another. And that ends up creating, in, in best case scenarios, amazing writing. And I, I brought it to copywriting and do it with a team. We have a small team. I have a total of about six of us. And we usually work no bigger than in a two or three at a time. But, but uh, whenever we put out a project, the entire team 
gets input. The entire team gets to look at it. They get their eyes on it. They get to say, listen, by the way, this is really nice over here, but over here, that kind of veers off and I don't get it. So boom, we know. And and a big thing in writing is, you know, as long as you get a bunch of eyes on it, if you're writing your own copy and you're not a professional, be sure to let people who know what the hell they're doing read it because other eyes can really help you see things that you'll never catch. Absolutely fascinating, Vin. I didn't know that that's what you did. I've never heard of that before, but I can see why it would work. As the old cliche phrase goes, two heads are better than one. So I can really see how having a couple of people on the project would really help with the copywriting piece. I just want to also say it also helps in another respect because if you're getting good copy written, like, you know, long copy is the thing these days Mm -hmm. where you'll be, you're being sold by like a 20 minute video or, or, you know, 20 pages of, of, you know, a sales letter or something. Uh, that's kind of the big thing online these days. And to do that right, it takes time. You're not going to find somebody who could write great copy working on it three or four days. Um, when you have more people working on it, you can get things done in an expedient manner. Still, though, to write a launch package, my team and I take five weeks. So to write a sales letter or a sales video and then all the little ancillary things like some emails and landing pages and things like that, we're looking at over a month. And then you look at some people who might, you know, hire a copywriter or one guy and this one guy is charging them X amount. He says, yeah, I'll have it for you in a week or I'll have it for you in two weeks. You have to understand how little time is actually being put into your copy when it's one guy for a week or two. Because I'll tell you, this stuff, in order to get it right, there is no secret formula. I've told my guys that I've trained, and I've trained some of the best guys out there today. If you're looking for a shortcut to become to write good copy, go somewhere else because I'll show you the long cut. I'll show you how to take twice as long as you ever took in your life, but you'll get way better work done. And that's what we deliver. We deliver way better work. Brilliant. Vin, on this interview, I wanted to really kind of delve into human nature a little bit, because as a copywriter, I'm sure that you must know quite a bit about human beings. You write to human beings, and you've got to understand them even better than they understand themselves. So I really want to delve deep into that today, if we could. My first question is, what role do emotions play in copywriting? Actually, key, key role. As a matter of fact, uh, we talk about this all the time, especially to my students. Uh, young copywriters learn one of the first things they learn is that people will decide to buy something based entirely on emotion. You think emotionally about things. When you go to buy a television, you're not buying the pixels. You're buying what you're going to do with the television, what you're going to see, how much better the football game is going to look. How much greater it's going to be to watch more movies at home because you've got the big screen to see Stallone blow something up. You're buying the emotional content that comes with it. You're not actually buying the pixels. So um, most of the sale is made on the front. Most of your sale is done before the close. It's done when they first um, come in for the, the sale. When someone walks into the electronic store to buy the television, the first five minutes talking to that guy is going to sell him or not. And that's all done emotionally. How can the salesperson, which is all a copywriter is, a salesman, how can the salesperson get them to get to connect emotionally with the buyer? So people decide to buy based on emotion. That's where emotion really plays the biggest part. Now that's three quarters of the deal, maybe even more is emotion. But at the very end, the very end of the sale, when they pull the money out of their pocket to give it to you, that's when emotion goes away and it all turns into 
analytics. It all turns into a business mind, an analytical, a, a, um, a numbers driven mind. So that's why in copy, what we do often, well, first of all, you have to address your emotions early. And then you do have to, when it comes time to make the close, you have to address the analytical mind. So you have to go from, you know, warm, fuzzy, I'm hugging you. Everything's great to, this isn't going to cost you 20 bucks. It's not going to cost you 10 bucks. If you order right now, you you get it for only $5.99. Now, that's hard and fast and cold and numerical, and people need to hear that. But then at the very end, just when you think emotion is done, and just as they're there and they're pulling the money out, you kind of seal the deal one more time by throwing a little bit more emotion in there. So you might say something, and I'm going to hit you with the, you know, the, the down and dirty hard way of doing it. These are probably, this is probably way too hard a sell to really do, but just to make an example. Um, so it's, I'm not, you're not going to pay $20. You're not going to pretend you won't even pay $5. So today, if you order just $4.99, but only for the first five who order right now. And let me ask you something. How good is little Timmy going to feel when you pick this up today, even though all the other kids have been waiting months for theirs? And how is that going to make you feel? So pick up the phone now. All of a sudden, you went from all the analytics right back to the heart, right back to the emotion. And that's where people melt. Literally, it should be illegal. It's so powerful. It should be illegal. Absolutely. Could emotions work against us and backfire? For example, the price. Let's say that the price is higher than they wanted to pay. Instead of getting the warm and fuzzies, they feel the pain of parting with their money. It's painful because if someone gives you a price, but you're like, oh, I can't afford that, suddenly that's a negative emotion which you which you don't want people to be feeling when they're reading your copy. Yeah, but if you've done that, it's my opinion, most of the time, if you've done that and the people are feeling the pain of the price, you've not done a good enough job in your writing so yeah. far. Mm-hmm. Because you really... I, I try to tell clients this and they're like, you know, they want to see a, a, you know, they want to see right there at the top of a sales page. They want to see the price in big numbers. And I'm like, whoa, slow it down. I don't want your people to see the price until I'm ready for them to see the price. They have to be prepared to see the price because let's come up with a number. $99. I'm speaking in American terms, obviously. $99 is a hundred bucks in anybody's book and a hundred bucks still is. It's worth something these days, even today. It's still money. And, uh, um, and a hundred bucks, it, it takes a little thought to pull a hundred dollars out of your pocket and hand it to somebody. It's not something you do on a daily basis for no reason. So yeah, you don't even want to show people the price until after they've already been able to appreciate the value of what it is are getting we call it the value build and uh it goes a little bit like what i kind of did the the down and dirty version is which is you could expect to pay this amount or if you look at everything you're getting you can easily agree that it's worth x dollars we both this is a trick i like to use this is a kind of an advanced trick i use again it should be illegal um i will say this in the copy where i'll say i think we both agree if i ask for this much 
that would be well worth it. I think we can both agree on that. You are now telling your reader what he agrees to. And after a while, they begin to believe you. I think Hitler came up with that idea, that if you lie enough, people will will believe you. Now, I never say to lie in your copy, except this is kind of a little lie. You're telling the audience, listen, I know you. You know me. We agree, and we agree that this is a great price. Now, they've never agreed to any of that, but if you get them thinking that they already think it's a good price, and they know you think it's a good price, and here's the most important, if you can prove to them what a good price it is, and then you hit them with the price, it's like, my God, $100 seems like nothing when you show them how it's worth $1,000. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant stuff. Vin, do you think that it's important for anyone that's getting into copy that they have a real good knowledge of human nature? It's probably the most important thing to know. And I'll give you a couple tricks on how to do it, because uh, I'm not naturally good at it. I became good at it. At first, as a stand-up comic, I, I got pretty good at reading people and seeing how people react to things. And as a writer, you have to become more of a, I don't know, a, a fabricator. You have to imagine people and take archetypes of people and imagine in, in your head how they're going to react. So you do have to understand human nature. Now, why do you have to understand them? Well, because if you can't understand the way they think, you cannot successfully write for them. So if I'm trying to convince Joey Bushnell to do something, I need to know what motivates Joey Bushnell. Understand? I understand, yeah. Okay, so now here's a trick I use. All my students use it. I recommend it to anyone, especially if you're going to write copy for the first time. When you're writing your copy, don't do it in an office. Don't do it in your home. Don't do it in a place where you're alone and quiet. Do it in a public place where your audience is. So, for instance, I do a lot of copy in the weight loss niche, niche, uh, weight loss, bodybuilding, that kind of thing, fitness. Um, I write a lot in there. So I spend a lot of time at a smoothie shop right next to a gym, and I will sit in the corner of this smoothie shop with my laptop or sometimes just with a pad and pen. And just listen to people as they talk. And here's another little like secret attached to that. If you go to a public place like a Starbucks or someplace like that with your laptop, once you open that laptop, the screen becomes a shield of invisibility. Once you lift it up, people ignore you. They don't even know you're there. They will have the most intimate personal conversations three feet from you without even thinking about it. So you can sit there, and I'll do this all the time. You can spy on your market while you're writing. So that's the big trick. If you want to understand your market and know their nature, not just in general human nature, because every group of people are different, you have to get to where they are and listen to how they think. Now, there's also an online version of this, and all that is entails going to forums and, and joining Facebook groups that contain your market. And hang out there and see how they post to one another and what they do publicly. Mm-hmm. And you'll get kind of a, kind of a, you know, a, a semi version of that online. Vin, I can honestly say that eavesdropping in the coffee shop, that's the most interesting way of doing market research that I've ever heard. And I'm definitely going to try it out because I've heard all the boring answers before about market research. And that's definitely a new one for me, which I'm going to try. It's all about being nosy. Okay, so let's talk about some specifics of human nature, which we can actually use in copy, and maybe some specific markets or situations that we could potentially use it. So the first one is greed. How can we use greed in copywriting? 
Well, if you're selling anything that's a money-making uh, product or an investing or, or or make money online or, or or you're selling a business. I mean, this works. All these things I talked to you about all work whether you're selling a website or you're selling a, a, a little chip shop, I think you guys call them. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, it's all the same. Uh, Gary Halbert, the late Gary Halbert, very famously, uh, you can find if you do a search, you can find a, a, a letter he wrote that was an ad on a dating site to find a girlfriend. And all of his copywriting skills worked to successfully find him a girlfriend. So all this stuff works everywhere. But greed is perfect on uh, things like uh, like investing, stocks and bonds and, and retirement things. Or even real estate is another one where greed becomes a big motivation. Um, but also, I mean, I'd say the biggest motivation, just to kind of jump ahead and jump away from greed, I would say the biggest motivation is probably pain. Okay. And if you can elicit pain in someone reading or watching your sales copy, you've got them in the palm of your hand. And here's the formula I use. It's not a, it's not a typical formula like you hear, but it, it, it's pretty simple to understand. Um, I tell my students, and I do this in my copy all the time, when it warrants. It's not everything that uses the pain motivator, but it's you want to start by opening the wound. So let's use uh, uh, weight loss. Open the wound, and I'm going to speak in very general terms. You're fat. I just opened the wound. I just called you a fatty. So now you open the wound. So now you don't want to just you open the wound, and then all of a sudden you're going to cure, you're going to heal the wound. You're not ready to do that yet. What you want to do now is you want to salt the wound. You want to make it really hurt. So not only are you fat. But you've known it your whole life. You went through school and the other kids made fun of you. They never picked you to play on sports teams. You're fat. You can't get the clothes you want. Women will not look at you. You will probably never have another date unless they make it legal for cousins to marry. You are going to have a horrible life all because you are worthless and fat. Now, obviously, just so you know, I'm overweight. Yeah, me too, by the way. I don't really mean you write like this i'm completely exaggerating to kind of make a point so now i open the wound by, by calling them fat i salted the wound by letting them know just how bad it, their life is all because they're fat and then you sweep in at the end and you heal the wound so i've told you you're fat i basically turned fat into ugly by saying you have and not only that fat is ugly and it's also destroying your life. So it's ruining your life. It's making you ugly. Your bad health, all this bad stuff have you all because you got a couple pounds on your belly. And now I'm going to tell you, but you know, you don't have to be that way. Used to be you'd have to work out for hours a day and, and eat rabbit food, but not anymore because I just found this amazing thing, XYZ. The XYZ product made me go from being exactly where you are to being perfect and slim and happy. I even earned more money, all because I got XYZ. So there you go. I took the pain, I salted it, I healed it, and that's the simple formula for using the pain motivator. Brilliant. And how about fears, Vin? As opposed to the pain that they're experiencing right now, how about fears of the future, worries and that kind of thing? I'm thinking in terms of maybe like a parent worrying for the future of their children or something like that. Do you see the slight difference I mean there? It's funny that you say that. I find that in most cases, the, the fear of the future work 
works, mostly when you're not talking about the reader or the viewer. When you're talking about people they love, it works the best. So the fact that you said that feeds right into what I found. So, yeah, people don't care as much about dying young when they have nobody. But when you throw in the part about what's it going to mean to your children when you're not there at the graduation, you're not there to walk her down the aisle. How's that going to feel for them? All of a sudden, you're like, ah, crap, i got to get healthy. I'm going to die. You know, all of a sudden, it motivates you because it's them. But if you're alone, you don't care about that stuff. You know, you're like, I mean, I know single guys who, like, are, like, never going to get married. At least that's what they think. And their their thoughts in their mind are like, you know, who cares? Last one alive, turn off the lights. I'm out of here. But when you have family, you have people who you love. I told you at the beginning of this call, probably not what you recorded, Joey, but I have a, a sick puppy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got to think about my sick puppy. My sick puppy needs me. What if I'm gone? I can imagine myself dropping dead right here at the keyboard. And all day, all along, is a whimpering puppy that no one's ever going to find out about. So it's when you're thinking about others that you love is when that fear usually works best. Now, I also want to connect that also with hope. I think that when you play on fear, you have to always give hope. You have to show, as I did earlier, that there is another way. And it's not just buy this or you're going to die. It's got to, you've got to paint a whole different picture of what life can be with the product and that hope that you can fill in their hearts. And the great thing about the word hope here is, in a lot of cases, there are things you're not legally allowed to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a famous old ad, the Wall Street Journal ad. It's an ad, if you you look it up, it's a story about two men who are identical in every way, and they both graduated together, and then 20 years later, they both worked on Wall Street or something like that. They worked for big, you know, major corporations. There's only difference. Now, these guys did everything the same, went to the same school, studied the same. The only difference was one of these people was middle management at this company. The other guy was the CEO. And what made the difference between the two of them? Well, um, you can get the Wall Street Journal for only X amount for 52 issues a year or whatever. And they go through this whole pitch for the Wall Street Journal. It was a very short ad. And it's sold, it's been argued, but billions of dollars worth of Wall Street Journals. And it's a famous old ad. You can look it up. And at no point, the thing that you notice in there is you completely get it when you read it, that this is, oh, I need the Wall Street Journal so I don't end up like the middle management guy. I can end up as the CEO. But if you look at the copy, they never say it. They never literally come out and say, hey, if you bought the Wall Street Journal, you would have a better life. But what they do is in that copy, they kind of let you make the connection and they just give you the hope. So they don't actually outright say it, but imply it. Or how do they give you that hope? If you're doing it right, Joey, you don't even have to imply it. You just allow the reader or viewer to infer it. Sure. Without implying it. It's it's really amazing. If you look it up, you'll see they it, it's brilliantly written and um and it's it's really great copy. One thing when you were talking about fears and hope there, Vin, which reminded me of my last job before I went self employed, was I used to sell life insurance. It's not a pain that they have at the present moment. No one's really expecting to die tomorrow. But as soon as you say to a prospect, would your family be able to cope if you as the main breadwinner were to die tomorrow? Suddenly, it's a fear of the future that they've never really anticipated before. But then the large sum of money that is offered in the worst case scenario, that gives them the hope that their family will be able to cope and carry on without them there. It just really kind of reminded me of that, how hopes and fears kind of go hand in hand, don't they? And as we talked earlier too, it's it's a lot of 
of them, you know, seeing it for their family, not for themselves, mm. but seeing it for their family. And that's where, where you turn the negative into a positive. How about laziness? Deep down, we're all a bit lazy, let's face it. We like to choose the easy route if there is that option available. So how can we put that into our copywriting? Okay, well, first of all, um, you don't want to be a lazy copywriter. Let's start with using the laziness that way. You want to be a guy who outworks the competition. If you're out there selling insurance, you're selling life insurance, the only real way for you to beat the average salesperson is to outwork the average salesperson. So no matter how good your skills get, you want to work hard. So while you, you're going to find a percentage of your market is going to be lazy, you don't want to be lazy because you can still lose the easy sales. Mm-hmm. Um, people are lazy. It's, it's plain and simple. People want done for you. They want a system in place to do stuff that they should be able to get off their asses and do themselves. But people want it done for them. So that's one way you can play on their laziness. Show them automatic solutions. That is actually in your product creation or in the way you you position a product. But on a whole separate side of this, um, laziness can play into you can play into your hands because if you go under the assumption that your market is lazy, you can if you push the offer the right way, you can assume that the people who want to buy are not going to want to look for you again. They're not going to want to do the search online to find the page you're looking at right now. So what does that mean? That means you will get a percentage of them that will buy now. A large percentage of them will not buy now. But they will also probably never go looking for you again. They do their one search. They're too lazy to do it again. They forget about you. It's out of sight, out of mind. So what you need to do in that instance is you want to rely a little bit more on email marketing. Make sure you capture people when you when you go to sell to them. Capture them in some way and get their email addresses um, or offline get their real addresses. If you run a business, um, you know, have a giveaway. If you run a pizza shop. Uh, and, and, you know, have people put their business cards in a bowl at the front and once a month give out a pizza party for lunch and now you, you're getting thousands of business cards, which, you know, in the, the fine print of the bowl contest, you have the right to use that to market to them. So you put that all on a list and now you can, you can start corresponding with them. You want to send your menus to them and your specials and, and offers for catering. So you want to capture people so that you can go out and actively look for them because they're going to be too lazy to come find you. Uh, another thing I want to say about the laziness is, because people are lazy, you don't want to make them work hard to buy what you're selling. Yeah. And the way I always put it is this. Um, you're asking people to give you their money. And when you take people out of the equation, people in their lives, money is the one thing everybody wants. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to give it up. They know they have to, but they don't want to give it to you. So my my rule is this. If you're going to take money from somebody, you better make it damn easy to give you that money. So you don't want to make them jump through hoops and fill out nine forms and click on 15 pages to finally complete the sale. You want to make it as smooth and seamless as possible because they're giving you their money. The least you can do is make it a simple process. I hope that answered something. Absolutely, Vin. It absolutely did. And I totally agree with you. Like you said in that last point about making it easy for them to buy, I pretty much made the decision to buy something once and the process of signing up was actually too long and arduous and I actually didn't do it. So that's my own laziness that stopped a sale for someone else. I've, I've done that too. And also, have you been in a situation, I bet this has happened to you, where you're, you're through the process and 
you, it, not only is it long, but it's so cumbersome that you don't even realize you're not done yet. Mm-hmm. You're like, really? Yeah. Yeah, my, I mean, I've had times where I've waited for something to arrive and it never showed up. And I wrote this and it never showed up. They said, oh, you never completed the order. Well, you know, thanks for telling me. <laughs> you know, I had to call you and say my product didn't arrive for you to tell me I didn't place the order. So, yeah, and I actually got a client that way by telling them how screwed up their buying process was. Cool. So it does have some advantages, at least for copywriters anyway. It does. Okay, so what about appealing to the reader's pride or vanity? How can that help us as copywriters? I promise this will be a shorter answer than all my others. Um, (laughs) I use a a system. Uh, There's a a document I put out a few years ago, a special report on seven ways to use story to sell. And one of these ways... Uh, to uh, uh, to use story is by um, by doing what I call the the buyer as hero story, and this is a story in your copy that that sets the image in people's minds that when they buy this product, they're going to so make people happy that they're going to be the hero. And you've seen this probably years ago before either of us were. Thinking about copy, uh, many years ago, you see it on old commercials on television where you'd see the, you know, the mom in the apron and, and she'd be in the kitchen cooking and the last minute she burns the roast, but she goes into the freezer and pulls out the frozen something or other, throws it in the, in the oven. It, it comes out. Everybody loves it. The women are asking her for the recipe and there she is with a smile on her face and the product box behind her back, like, Oops, we got away with it. It's so delicious and perfect. That story is the story is that when you buy this product, you're going to be seen as the hero. And that's how you can really play on that. You let people know that buying this is going to make them uh, successful. And I don't even just mean a product on how to be successful. I mean, buying this is going to make other people look at them and go, wow, that guy, that gal, they've got it together. My next question is actually quite similar to the last one. How about prestige and social status? Is that sort of tied in with the previous question, Vin? Yeah, but I would say there's actually a, another added thing that you can add to that, and it's the velvet rope. It's the it's the exclusivity. If you add some exclusive nature to your product, people feel it's exclusive, and then they everybody wants to be in a club that will not have them in it. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to be in the club that you can't get into. Uh, it's nightclubs in New York or Los Angeles. I'm sure it's like that in London. And, you know, there's a line out front. And some of these clubs, I don't know if you know this, but some people probably don't know it. Some of these clubs absolutely would pay people to stand in line out front. Beautiful people. You see a gorgeous 22-year-old girl in a in a short skirt and beautifully done up. And a guy, you could tell, has money dripping off of him. And they're waiting in line. You know that is one hot place to be. So you put that velvet rope up. And you do that in your copy, and you make it an exclusive private club. It's not just, hey, I got this membership site I'd like you to join. It's an exclusive club that I'm not going to let everyone in. Mm-hmm. You know, as a matter of fact, one out of every three people to see this page will not be in this club. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, sure, what you're saying is 75% of the people are not going to buy, but you don't make it sound like that. You make it sound like this is such a club, you have to be in it. So that's how you do prestigious uh, social status kind of stuff. If you're selling an online program, how would you achieve that? Would you use the tactic of maybe limiting the amount of places that are available? Yeah, that's another way to do it too. Exclusivity can be done with there's only a few units left. Or um, I'll give you a real example of exclusivity. I talk about my students all the time. And this is a real case. This is not something being used as a marketing ploy. But 
the people who come to me to teach them, uh, I don't accept them all. I accept the, a very few of them, as a matter of fact. Maybe two out of ten who want me to be their mentor get in the program, and they pay me for it. So they're actually paying me to teach them, and eight out of ten of them I do not accept. And now why do I do this? Well, first of all, there is exclusivity in it. But the other reason for me is on a personal uh, business level, on my own level, it's a great way to cheat, to make sure that the best guys Mm -hmm. somehow have my name attached to them. Because all the lesser writers, the ones who are going to be much harder to teach to be great, um, I don't accept them. So... It helps make, oh, wow, you know, Vin has turned out 10 of the hottest copywriters out there today. That's amazing. Well, it's not really because there were 90 other guys that I said no to. If I could have taken them on, made the money, and still would only have 10 successful guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it looks better for you in the end also because you're only you're only letting in people who are going to help make your brand look good. So it can it actually does work both ways. Definitely. Also, Vin, from your point of view, another lesson from earlier about laziness I'm sure that to get into your mentoring, they'd have to fill out some sort of application of some kind. So the fact that they filled it out in the first place means they weren't lazy and they'll probably do what you say in the future. Not only that, there is a little bit of an audition process where I literally they have to show me writing and I have to critique their writing. And some guys never even get to the critique. I will just look at it and say, yeah, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. You're just not, you know, not what I'm looking for. And in other cases, it's, listen, you've got talent. I see the talent. Come to me back in six months. Come back to me in a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wait for them to kind of catch up to where I, I can see, well, how have they progressed? Because here's the easiest thing to do. In, in this business or any business, is to get pretty good at something and then get lazy. Let's go back to the laziness thing. If you can get pretty good at something, if you're if you're doing nothing and you start a business, and let's say you're a copywriter, okay, and you start your business as a copywriter and you know nothing and you learn three tricks, and those three tricks make your clients a million dollars, and every time you use those three tricks, you're going to make a lot of money for a client. It's very easy to not not learn the rest of the tricks because you got enough to be very comfortable. I try to make sure that my guys keep learning all the tricks. Brilliant. And that's, you know, kind of the secret to to, you know, getting great. So on a little bit of a lighter note because we've explored some of the darker sides of human nature which we as copywriters can exploit. Let's move on to some nicer emotions. How about fun and adventure? How can we use that to sell? Well, there's, there's many ways to do it, and I don't use them all. I'll tell you how I usually use it. And again, let me preface, I should have said this at the beginning of this conversation. There are some things that are done differently by the copyers. I'm only telling you how I do it and how I teach it. Um, but when it comes to putting adventure and fun into copy, an easy way to do it is to literally put adventure and fun into your copy by telling stories. Tell a fun, exciting story. Um, when you, you started this conversation with me and asked me how I got into it, I were uh, changing careers, uh, and I found this ad that came in my email, and I answered it and took a course and became a copywriter. But there's nothing fun there. But when I tell you the story about where I was, what I was doing, why, even the line... Even the simple line when I said I realized I was unemployable anywhere outside of Los Angeles, even when I just say that line, it, all of a sudden it's become a fun story. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's adventure, there's my wife and I picking up, leaving, going across the country. So it's just tell a fun story and you're going to bring some fun to it. Another way you could do it also is I have a product coming out for a client of mine coming out like next month. It's right now in the final stages and it's a 
diet, and that's one of the things, again, diets, you got to make a diet look like fun. If you don't make a diet look like fun, not only is no one going to do the diet, no one's going to buy the diet. So in the past, people have done this in many different ways. I did it successfully with a client a few years ago by making the copy look fun. So we, instead of having the typical bodybuilder photos, we were like among the first to put the, the caricature photos in, the comic photos. Because if you see a page that is very colorful, and all of a sudden it feels fun. If you see a page that has cartoon characters on it, how can that be tough and serious? It's fun. So that's one way to add the fun. So those would be probably my two answers there. One thing that I'm getting an urge to do quite a lot recently, Vin, is to travel. And that gets me feeling excited, fun, and adventure. And I guess it's a contrast to normal, ordinary life. Is that part of it as well, Vin? Do you think that it's escapism from the mundane? Well, I, I think, again, that can be done. There are so many ways. See, I can answer literally this question can be answered for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can do that by, by, by telling a story. You can also do it by not telling a story and just having a theme. So if you have um, – we did copy recently. The team did earlier this year. We did copy for um, a Make Money product, great product by the way. I won't mention the name though. And the whole thing was done in a in a film noir kind of 40s comic book kind of look. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing was very, um, you know, black and white pencil drawings kind of thing. And um, it was fun, not in the fact that it was colorful and broad. It was fun in the fact that it followed a theme. And it, it we, we played that theme throughout the entire thing. I had another, another uh, product that I had worked on a few years ago where the entire uh, product was about, um, about a quest that someone was on. So throughout the copy, there were everything turned into a quest. Everything was, you know, not only uh, was the hero of my story on a quest to better his body, he was on a quest for a six-pack. He was on a quest to get all the women that wouldn't have him in high school. But when I talked to my reader, I turned that into a quest. What about your quest? What are you up to? So putting it all together in a theme can have that same kind of feeling of adventure. All of a sudden, you know, the lead guy is on a quest. I'm talking about my reader as a, being on a quest. You put the two together and all of a sudden, you know, wow, I'm just like the guy in the story. And it becomes kind of living the adventure. Awesome. Vin, my final question is a little bit of a controversial one. You hear it all the time, the term that sex sells. Is there a truth in that, and how do you slip it into copy? Sex, absolutely, 100%. The quick answer is sex sells. Mm -hmm. Uh, The slightly longer answer is the one thing that sex sells better than anything else is sex. So using sex to sell sex, you're going to sell it almost 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. But you can use sex to sell other things as long as the rest of what you're selling is also, um, you know, you're hitting all the buttons. You're hitting all the other emotional buttons. Sex is not an emotion. Mm-hmm. But um, but the, the let's call it the, the afterglow of sex certainly is. Mm-hmm. So uh, as long as you still use your emotional selling that we talked about and you, you push all those right buttons at all the right times, sex absolutely can sell. There's a great, again, I think it was Gary Halbert. I don't know. I could be wrong on this one. Some great old ad where literally the headline, now you've seen some headlines on ad copy, the headline's 20 words long. Well, this this copy, the headline in big red letters said sex, exclamation point. And then in very fine print underneath in parentheses, it said, now that I've got your attention and it's sold because the word sex in you know five inches tall in red uh is going to get attention so yes sex can absolutely sell 
And uh, um, I'll tell you, though, there's another side of this that has nothing to actually do with sex, and it's the fact of sexiness. You hear this all the time. I mean, I'll say it all the time to a writer will bring me copy, and I'll say, yeah, it's all good. Now sex it up a little bit. I want to see the sex. I want it to be sexy. I want to feel it. And that really just means to kind of make it sensational, make it emotional, but big, and you know, this adding sex to something doesn't always have to be about sex. And I think that's a good place to end it right there. It doesn't have to be about sex to be adding sex. Well, Vin, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Genuinely, this has been one of the best interviews that I've done. I really enjoyed the time that we spent together today, and I'm sure that everyone listening has as well. How do we get more from you? There is no more from me. You got it all. I'm now retiring. No. <laughs> they can always contact me if anybody's looking for copy. Uh, I'm at montellomarketing.com. It's an old website that I haven't even looked at in about seven years. M-O-N-T-E-L-L-O marketing.com, all one word. And uh, so that's my, my, my services website. You can read a little bit more about my stories and my background and see what I've done for some clients. I do hang out these days. I have a blog. We don't call it a blog, but you might appreciate this, Joey. It's called Marketing Clambake. Uh, Clambake is an East Coast phenomenon in America. I don't know if they have them elsewhere, but it's basically late summer nights. You'd go clamming and you'd go catch a bunch of clams and you'd have these bushels of clams and you'd start a bonfire, get a pot of water boiling, and you'd start making clams and drinking beer and having a great party on the beach. And so I named the the blog uh, the Marketing Clam Bake so we could have fun there and talk marketing. And we do that. It used to happen weekly. Uh, now it's kind of gone down to about monthly. We do a live one-hour um, webinar. Uh, so if you go to marketingclambake.com, you can sign up to be notified, and then, you know, you'll find out when we have these calls. It's totally 100% free, and here's the cool part. We have fun. We talk about marketing. We're never selling you anything. It's really just to kind of see what's going on. You guys can ask any questions you have about marketing, copywriting, marketing, whatever it is, and me, my team, my, my friends, whoever's on the call, we all just kind of put out answers and, and help everyone, and it's totally 100% free. A price you can't beat. Great. Well, that is the end of today's episode, everyone. Thank you all for listening. Vin, thank you so much for coming on the show. The Online Marketing Show, every day with Joseph Bushnell, helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.